Good morning, everyone. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can now come to uh, listen to your word. And we pray that you will speak to us and help us to understand uh, what exactly Jesus came for and to respond in our lives in faith and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what does Jesus' death really mean? See, what does it really signify? So, some people say uh, that Jesus' death was a tragedy. Okay, Jesus was this freedom fighter, a revolutionary who went out to reform Israel. And, uh, you know, he never intended to die, but somehow he got crushed by fate. And somehow his men- enemies managed to trap him, and he was taken by surprise, and he died as a martyr. That's one version of understanding what Jesus' death means. Now, other people say, well, Jesus' death is a cautionary tale to all of us who, would, who are young and foolish. You see, Jesus was a pretender. Jesus was a tryhard, a wannabe Messiah. But he didn't quite make it. He made ridiculous claims about himself. Uh, he got himself into big trouble. And he got what he deserved at the end. And there are many other versions of what people think Jesus' death means. So today we want to ask the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death? And we don't just want to know the facts or the history or the details of Jesus' death. A lot of us already know it, but we want to ask, why did Jesus die? What is his significance? And so the answer is in chapter 14. And it's a very long chapter as you realize, so I won't be uh, touching on everything in detail, but hopefully I can do a broad sweep and get the main themes out of the chapter, but not necessarily in order. Okay, so we'll start by looking uh, at uh, the beginning of the chapter, or not the beginning, the, the part that we read from verse 18. Okay, and the first thing that we notice in today's passage is that Jesus goes to the cross deserted. He goes across alone. You see, I'll show you a, a slide up here. If you notice the, the, the structure of the chapter, there are repeated predictions that he will be deserted, his disciples will fail, and then later on, all these get fulfilled one by one. So, one disciple betrays him, okay? then the twelve, then Peter, and the predictions and the fulfillment. So, what is this trying to emphasize to us? The point is that Jesus knows what his disciples are going to do. Jesus knows that they are weak and that they will fail him miserably. So the first prediction is about Judas, right? I mean, Mark doesn't tell us beforehand that it's about Judas. He tells us somebody will betray Jesus. But the first one is about Judas. So let's read that part, verse 18 onwards, on the next uh, slide. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Jesus knows from the start who is going to betray him. He says, it's one who dips bread into the bowl with me, but that doesn't specify anyone because everybody will be dipping the, the, you know, uh, in the bread into the bowl together. Now what Jesus is doing here, he's adapting some words from the Old Testament, from Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is the prayer of King David, 
when he was oppressed by his enemies and people were talking behind his back and plotting against him. And in Psalm 41, David prays that God will protect him and sustain him. And one of the words that David prayed was, um, on the slide, it's uh, Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. If sharing somebody's bread uh, or having a meal with someone is a sign of being friends, right? It's a sign of fellowship, it's a sign of closeness. And even today, that is the case. So David knew what it was like to be betrayed by someone really close to him. And Jesus had exactly the same experience See, his experience fulfills what David said in this psalm. He says that Jesus said, whatever happens to him has to happen according to Scripture. The Son of Man goes as according to what is written in Scripture. He will be betrayed to his death as predicted in Scripture. But there is a difficulty for us to understand this passage here. If Judas did fit into God's plan, and it was all foretold in Scripture long ago, why is Judas held responsible for doing something that God planned would happen? And this is a mystery that comes up again and again when we read the Bible. What we know is that Judas decided to betray Jesus in his evil and rebellious heart. He knew Jesus is innocent, and yet he chose to betray him to his death. So Judas is fully responsible uh, he's guilty for all his sin, and no one forced Judas to betray Jesus, right? Nobody uh, made him do it. He was free to choose to do it. He chose it himself. He made the decision. And so God punishes Judas for his sin severely, and his sin will lead to eternal ruin in hell. That's why Jesus says, Woe to, woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And yet, at the same time, God is in control of everything that human beings do. God is not stumped. He's not defeated by human sin. God uses what Judas did to bring salvation to mankind. God doesn't make anyone sin. They sin on their own accord and they will be judged for what they do. But those people who oppose God, uh, uh, they are actually still under God's control. God is sovereign over all, all human actions and everything that we do as human beings in our own free will are still under God's control. And that's the part that's hard for us to understand. But that's what the Bible says. And therefore what we see is Jesus is the sovereign king over everything leading up to his death. See, Jesus' death was not an accident. It wasn't a mistake. He didn't make a wrong decision, a bad decision. It was a deliberate choice that he made to fulfill God's will and to fulfill God's purpose. So Jesus knew beforehand everything that would happen and in fact he knew it had to happen in this way because scripture said so. And the same thing is true of what Jesus predicted about his disciples. So in verse 27 to 28, uh, Jesus says, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So again, Jesus says that the disciples falling away is part of what scripture fulfills. In, in the Old Testament, it says that, okay, in Zechariah, 
Zechariah the prophet prophesied, Awake, sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So God predicted what would happen when he struck down his shepherd, the chosen one. All the little sheep would be scattered away. And we know from the passage that we just read that it happened that very night itself. But there is a glimmer of hope when Jesus said, I will rise from the dead and I'll meet you in Galilee. He will regather his disciples, he will restore his disciples, and all is not lost. And so the, the main point here is Jesus goes to the cross completely alone. He doesn't get any human help at all in the cross. It's all completely his doing. He's deserted by all his disciples. And the next scene I want to look at is uh, verse 53 to 65. And that's the part about Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin. Okay, and the Sanhedrin is a council of Jewish members which were made out of three powerful groups. Okay, the chief priests who looked after the temple affairs, the teachers of the law or the scribes who taught the, the Bible to the Jews, and the elders who ruled over them. And together they held the religious authority over all the Jews in Jerusalem. Okay? They did not have a lot of uh, political authority because the Romans were in charge of the country and the Romans did not give them any authority to execute people. Okay? So that's why they had to bring Jesus to Pilate eventually in the next chapter. So what they're having here is not an official trial to, to put Jesus to death. It's more like an interrogation to try to gather charges, gather evidence against Jesus. So what happened? Okay, I read from verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. And many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. And yet, even then, their testimony did not agree. So basically, they couldn't find anything that Jesus had done wrong. Okay? Not even when they used the false witnesses. They still couldn't uh, pin him down with anything. Okay? They threw around different accusations. They tried different things, but no luck for them. No luck. They couldn't find any charge that would stick to Jesus. And so in verse 60, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Why is Jesus silent? Well, again, it is the fulfillment of Scripture. Okay, in Isaiah 53 that we read in the responsive reading, on the next slide, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet... He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't defend himself because he knew he had to go to the cross. So Jesus hasn't done anything deserving of death. He's falsely accused. He doesn't do anything to defend himself. Okay? Maybe if he had called a lawyer or something, he might have got out of the situation. Okay? But he kept quiet. So that all this injustice would run its course, he would be condemned to death, and that was all God's plan. 
And finally, the high priest gets very impatient, okay? And he thinks of a brilliant way to incriminate Jesus. Okay, so he cuts to the chase and he asks the most important question, the most crucial question of all. He asks Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And if you've been reading Mark closely, you realize that that is the question of the hour. That is the whole question in behind the entire book of Mark. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? So, of course, the high priest is looking for a reason to, to kill Jesus, to execute him. Because if Jesus says he's the Messiah, then he's saying he's the king. If he says he's the king, then the Roman governor will have to put him to death because he'll be threatening the power base of the Romans. So, what does Jesus answer? For the first time, Jesus publicly acknowledges he is the Messiah. See, throughout Mark's Gospel, we've seen Jesus hiding his identity from people, right? Uh, he doesn't want them to misunderstand his identity as a political messiah. But now there is no more, no more possibility of being misunderstood. Because now he's standing before these people who are going to sentence him to death. And so, he shows them his glory as messiah. He says in verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here Jesus is making a huge claim. He's making a grand statement about himself. He's saying, I am the Messiah, God's King. But he's saying more than that. He refers to two Old Testament passages. Okay, the first one, Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, being at God's right hand mean, means uh, to have God's authority, to share God's authority. God himself says, I will fight for you. I will put your enemies under your feet as a footstool. So he's saying that these Jewish leaders are enemies of God. They are enemies of God's Messiah and God is going to crush them. And the other Old Testament passage that Jesus refers to is one that we read last week as well. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 to 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he, was, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, I am that one. That son of man who will one day ride the clouds of heaven directly into God's presence and be given authority and power and glory. He is the one who will judge the world on the last day. And so in other words, the Jewish authorities think that they are the ones standing in judgment over Jesus. But Jesus says, no, actually, I will be the one standing in judgment over you. The tables will be turned. And so, Jesus' answer to the high priest is much more than what the high priest actually asked him. He says he's, he's not just the Messiah or God's anointed king. Because in those days, they would have thought that the Messiah was a human king. A king descended from David, very important guy, but still a human being. But Jesus claims more than he is the Messiah. He claims 
the position of God Himself. He says that He has a privilege that God has. He has He's at God's right hand. He rides the clouds of heaven, which is something that only God does. And so He takes God's position. And what is the response? Well, verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their face and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So the high priest actually gets the message loud and clear. They realize he is claiming the position of God. So they say, it's blasphemy. Okay, Blasphemy means speaking against God or claiming somehow the position that only God has. And blasphemy in those times was a capital offense for the Jews. And so they condemn Jesus to death. He's worthy of death. And they spit on him, they mock him, they strike him. But the irony is that Jesus was not blaspheming. Jesus was telling the truth. He is really who he claims to be. Jesus, is, he may not seem like the Messiah, he may not seem like the Son of God, because he seems so weak and so helpless, standing there ready for death. So it's not because there was some unexpected turn of events in Jerusalem that Jesus is standing there ready to die. It's not because he made a mistake or caught by surprise. No. Jesus knew all along. Let me remind you of something that happened in chapter 10. Jesus said, We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So you can see how detailed is Jesus' knowledge of what is going to happen. He knows exactly in detail what's going to happen. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem deliberately with his eyes open, knowing that he is walking into this trap. He knows. He goes purposely to die knowing that he will face injustice from his enemies. And so Jesus is deserted by his disciples and friends, and his enemies frame him, and yet he goes to the cross calmly, resolutely. But in the next scene that we are going to look at, we see that it wasn't all calm and smooth sailing for Jesus. And that is verses 32 to 42, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, I'll read a bit to you. Verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, and yet not what I will, but what you will. Now this is probably the most traumatic and difficult and painful time that Jesus had to go through in the whole gospel. Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. You can see from what he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And in, in Luke, 
Luke gives us an additional detail. He says, His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It was that bad. So Jesus is obviously in great agony here. And the question is, why? See, the whole time we've seen Jesus saying again and again, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. It's always been his disciples who couldn't accept it, right? But whereas for Jesus, it didn't seem to affect him that much. So why is Jesus in so much anguish? Is he so afraid to die? Is he so afraid of the pain of the cross? Now, someone told me recently that uh, those prisoners in Changi who are waiting to be hanged, a lot of them go mad, just counting down the days and every day having nothing to think about except the fact that they are going to die. But being hanged is nothing compared to being crucified. Being nailed to a cross is a slow and torturous form of death, one of the most barbaric ways to execute someone ever devised by a human being. And I think that anybody who knows that he's going to be nailed to a cross on the next day would have the same reaction as Jesus. Now sometimes we think because Jesus is God, somehow he's, he's, everything is easy for him. He doesn't have to go through the same experiences that we go through. You know. But Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. He knows what it is to be afraid of suffering. He's not immune from all the weaknesses that we all share as human beings. See, in fact, that is exactly why Jesus can understand the things that we go through. Because He has been through worse than us. He has been through the deepest pain that human beings can endure. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, For this reason He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered, and when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that's why we should pray to him, because he can help us in our time of need. But you see, it's not just death and physical pain that Jesus is afraid of. Why is he so upset here? The answer can be found in Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer. What is the thing that Jesus wanted God to take away? He says, take this cup from me. Now what is the cup? Well, the cup is a common Old Testament theme. You see, what is the cup in the Old Testament? Let me read an example to you from an Old Testament book in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So what is the cup that Jesus has to drink? The cup is a common symbol in the Old Testament for God's wrath, God's punishment, God's judgment. And Jesus is in great anguish here because he is about to taste the cup of God's wrath. See, Jesus the Son has always been in a relationship of mutual love with the Father for eternity. But now he's going to be the sin bearer. He's going to suffer the full force of God's wrath. And on the cross, 
When God looks at Jesus, what is he going to see? He sees the sin of the whole world. And the Father will turn away in disgust and abhorrence. And for the first and only time, the Son will be alienated from the Father and rejected by the Father. See, God will abandon him, not in the sense that God cuts himself completely off from him, not in the sense that the Son and the Father relationship is dissolved. No, Jesus remains the Son. But in the sense that God leaves him there to suffer and to die because he is carrying sin, the sin of the whole world. God abandons him on the cross. And it's impossible for us to imagine how distressing, how horrible that is for Jesus to him to endure. So Jesus struggles so much with this that he prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, of course, God can do anything, right? God can take away the cup, yes. But on the other hand, if Jesus is going to save people from sin, then there is no other way. The cross is God's only way to save us. And it is the Father's will for Jesus to go to the cross. So Jesus is torn between wanting to avoid the cross and wanting to do the Father's will. So, what wins? You know, Ask yourself, what is Jesus' will in the end here? Well, he says, not my will. So in one sense, if he had a choice, it is not his will to go to the cross. And yet, he said, but not my will, but yours be done. In other words, it is his deeper desire and his will to do the Father's will, to do what the Father wants. And so ultimately, it is Jesus' will to go to the cross because he is doing the Father's will. And so Jesus is moved by love and is moved by his Father's love to go to the cross, to do whatever it takes to save human beings from sin and from judgment. And so he goes willingly to the cross. He doesn't resist. Now when this mob of uh, people come with swords and clubs, he gives himself to them freely, his mind is settled, and he is determined to go through with it. Why? Why did Jesus endure desertion? Why did Jesus uh, suffer injustice? And why was he willing even to be abandoned by his father? And the next section will tell us why. We're going to look at verses 12 to 26 and especially verses 22 onwards. Now this is the account of Jesus' last supper with the disciples. It says that it was the first day of, un of the festival of unleavened bread. In other words, the first day of the Passover festival. And that is the day when the Jews will uh, celebrate by eating a Passover meal, right? So Jesus' last meal with his disciples is a Passover celebration. Now what is Passover? Okay, the Passover was to remember the night long, long ago when God delivered Israel from death in Egypt, when God passed over the houses of the Israelites, over the firstborn, to destroy only the firstborn belonging to the Egyptians. And why did God pass over those Israelite houses? It was because a Passover lamb was sacrificed in each house. In each house, this lamb was killed and the blood of this lamb was smeared on the doorpost and God saw that a sacrifice had been made taking the place of the firstborn who was supposed to die. And God says, okay, I will not destroy this firstborn child because there has been a lamb die in its place. 
And so in this Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples, Jesus is going to show them what is the true meaning of the Passover. You see, the Passover points forward to the real sacrifice that is Jesus himself. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. So verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. This is my body. Now in the original Passover, what does the bread actually represent? Well, we are told that the Israelites did not have time to bake normal bread, so they baked unleavened bread without yeast, because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They had to leave Egypt in a huge hurry, and so they took unleavened bread. So the Passover bread for them was called the bread of affliction. It represented the great need of the people in that time. Their great need to be rescued, and it represents the urgency of their situation. But now Jesus gives the bread a new meaning. See, Jesus says the bread now represents my body that I will give in death for the people. Now Jesus doesn't say the lamb represents my body. He says the bread represents my body. Okay, Because in the Passover, it was the lamb that was the substitute. It was the lamb that was the sacrifice. But now this lamb is no longer needed. Jesus himself will be the lamb. He will replace the Passover lamb. He is the true Passover lamb. And the very next day, Jesus is going to die in place of sinners to remove their guilt and turn away God's wrath. And he will be the sacrifice for sins. You know what, nowadays when Jews celebrate the Passover, they actually don't have a lamb, but it's not because they believe that Jesus is the lamb. It's because they don't have a temple anymore to, to offer a lamb in. Okay, but the real meaning is that there is no more need for the lamb in the Passover. Jesus makes this bread into a symbol of his sacrifice. It represents his body, right? And body here represents all of himself. Jesus says, I'm giving myself, all of me, for you. That's what it means. And then he turns to the cup, verse 23. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Again, Jesus here gives new meaning to the cup of wine. He says, the blood represents the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, let's uh, think about this in, in a bit more detail. Let's uh, separate the words. The first one is, what does my blood mean? Well, my blood just means my death, right? Because in the Old Testament, the life of a creature was found in its blood. So, Jesus, in saying, I'm pouring out my blood, means I'm giving away my life. I'm dying for many people. And secondly, what does my blood of the covenant mean? What does blood of the covenant mean? Well, it re- again, we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand this. Okay, so in, in Exodus, we know that God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai and there he says, I want to have a special relationship with you. I choose you to be in a covenant with me You will be my treasured possession. I will be your God. You will be my people. But you will will remain in this covenant only if you keep all my covenant requirements. Okay, so in Exodus, in chapter 20 to 23, God gives them all of his covenant requirements. He says, all these are my laws and covenant commandments. 
Okay, so what to do after that? After that, he has to ask them, are you going to, do you want to be in this covenant or not? Okay, if you want, you sign on the dotted line. Okay, so there was a covenant sealing ceremony in Exodus 24. And in today's terms, it would be a, a signing ceremony, right? But in those days, they didn't seal contracts by signatures or handshakes. They sealed it in blood. And so Exodus 24 tells us. Okay, basically, I'll just go through quickly. So Moses asked the people, do you want to be in this covenant? And they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And Mo- Moses uh, wrote down all the laws for them. Okay, then the next morning they got up and they sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings and burnt offerings. And Moses took half of the blood and put it uh, in the bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then again he asked the people, are you going to do what God commands? And they said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And then he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So, he took half the blood and sprinkled it or dashed it against the altar. That is God's side of the deal. But he took the other half of the blood and sprinkled it on the people and that is the people's side of the deal. They are now, once they have the blood on them, they are now in a binding covenant with God. It cannot be broken without consequences. The covenant has now been legally ratified and signed and sealed in blood. And coming back to the Last Supper in Mark, Jesus says, it is my blood that seals the covenant between God and his people. See, he's not talking about this old covenant which was made in Sinai because that is already in the past. That was sealed in animal's blood. But he is talking about a new covenant that God is going to make with his people. And that is what the Old Testament also tells us about, right? In a very familiar passage in Jeremiah 31, God says that I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like that old covenant at Sinai which they keep on breaking and breaking, but it will be a new covenant where they will now be able to obey me and be my people. So we know that Israel kept failing, but God was gracious. He gave them this promise of a new covenant. And Jesus, what he's doing here, is saying that now this promise has come to fulfillment. I will seal this new covenant in my blood. So Jesus is the one who enables us to be in a covenant relationship with God. That's why Jesus' blood is the blood of the covenant. And thirdly, what does it mean when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many? Well, again, it takes us back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. Uh, we won't read through the whole thing, but basically we already read it just now. But basically in Isaiah 53, it shows us that this suffering servant of God will die, will give his life and suffer as an offering for sin to bear the iniquities of people. He will pour out his life unto death and he will bear the sin of many. So it's very, very clear in this Isaiah passage that God promised that somebody is going to come and die for other people's sins. Jesus does it in our place as our substitute, as our sacrifice, so that we can have forgiveness of sins from the Father. So he is our Passover lamb. He came to be the lamb to give his body and his blood for us. 
And so today we no longer celebrate the Passover as Christians anyway. Because the true Passover lamb has already come and there's no need for a Passover. The shadows are no longer necessary when the realities have come. But now we celebrate the Lord's Supper as Jesus commanded. And whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, whenever we eat the bread and drink of the cup, we are actually symbolically showing that the Lord Jesus gave His body for us and He poured out His blood for us and we receive and we give thanks for all those things that He did for us. That's what it means. So Jesus, deserted by His, enemy, by his disciples and framed by His enemies, abandoned by His Father and yet He gives His life to take away our sins. So some people may see Jesus' life as a tragedy and others may see it as a cautionary tale, but the Bible doesn't see it that way. See, Jesus died deliberately, it was purposeful, and he died to fulfill Scripture. And therefore, Jesus' death, the Bible says, is not a tragedy, but it is good news. Jesus' death is good news, it's great news, it's momentous news, because it is God's solution to mankind's only big problem, which is sin. It means that we can now be saved from judgment and punishment and hell. And so, what should be our response? Well, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here I'm talking especially to those of you who have not yet believed. What, what, you know, what, what are the things that we must believe? Well, we shouldn't just believe that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he died on the cross. But we must believe why he did it. He did it for us. He did it to be our sin bearer and our substitute, our atoning sacrifice. So we must trust that Jesus' body and blood were given for us to effectively turn away God's judgment. There is no other way to be rescued from sin. Otherwise, do you think that Jesus in Gethsemane would have had to still go through with the cross? No. Not if there was any other way. So believe and you will be saved. That's the first point. The second point, let us be grateful and thankful for Jesus' sacrifice. See, in Gethsemane, we glimpsed something of how much it cost Jesus to go to the cross. It wasn't easy for him. He did it out of love for us and out of obedience to the Father. Now, if you go swimming in the sea and you start drowning and somebody rescues you, would you not be grateful to that person? And all the more, if that person dies in the process of saving you, would you not be grateful? But Jesus has saved us not from just a physical death. He saved us from eternal death and eternal hell. And He gave His life to do it. So let us be thankful for His love. And one of the ways that we can be thankful is whenever we come to church or celebrate the Holy Communion. But also, in view of God's mercy to us, let us live lives that are godly, that are thankful and obedient, not because we are trying to pay God back. We can't do that. Okay, but because we are thankful for what He has done for us. So let us strive to be godly and flee from sin and be eager to know Him more and be zealous for His work and love other people. And thirdly, let us ask God for strength to be His faithful disciples. Because we see in Jesus' own disciples how weak we human beings are. We see how frail we are and we see how much we need His help. 
Jesus told them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so often that is true of us as well. In our heart of hearts, we really want to do the right thing and we really want to please God and want to serve Him, but we are too tired, we are too busy, we are too distracted. Jesus says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So we need constantly to be praying, to be asking God for strength to be faithful and not drift away from our faith. Because no matter what we go through, Jesus understands. He has been through it and He will help us. And lastly, let us look forward to the coming kingdom of God. Jesus will return for us. And in that day, there will be no more heartache, and no more frustration, and no more exhaustion, no more sin or sickness or death. Jesus says, On that day, I will drink of the fruit of the wine anew in the kingdom of God. So let us live in light of that day and make it a point that we want to be one of those people who will drink with Jesus in the kingdom of God. So let us keep believing and keep thanking and keep praying and keep hoping. And let's pray to God for strength for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to the cross for us. And thank you that in accordance with your will, he gave his body for us in love. And his blood was poured out to establish a new covenant for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. And thank you that he went through betrayal and desertion and injustice and abandonment all for our sake. Help us to believe in him and to continue firm in our faith to the very end. Help us to lead lives of thankfulness and obedience. And please give us the strength to be Jesus' disciples in the midst of all our weaknesses and hardships. And please enable us to look forward to his return and to live expectantly only for him until that day when you bring us into your eternal kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Passover Lamb. Amen.